everyone. Hi, hello. Welcome to another very exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here in my ever evolving studio. Tony, would you agree that every time you see the studio, it looks a little bit different? A little bit, but it keeps getting better, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. what Joel Stein said last mm-hmm. time. And then I thought, wow, you must have thought it really looked like shit the first time you were here. <laughs> no, I think I think the uh, the fake fireplace yeah. has done wonders. I know. Yeah. I'm unsure whether we're going to keep the, the fake fireplace there, though, because that was like uh, we put that there to go behind the Kyle Kinane on the episode that he was mm-hmm. here. But really, that was not where Daniel, the the. Uh, visionary behind the fake right. fireplace not where he thought it would look best so right 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 i don't know there's a, there's a lot going on eventually i feel like it's going to be like five years before i die or something <laughs> we're going to really get this place dialed in and then or maybe like five days i don't know five years sounds too long i feel my general feeling about a lot of things lately is that i'm going to get it all figured out at the very end like, I feel like mm-hmm. my senior year of college is when I really was like, I'm enjoying learning. Yeah. And so I feel like my last months, days, years on earth is when I'm going to like really, I'm going to really knock, knock out those things on my to-do list. Yeah. Or, or there'll be another pandemic or something like that. Let's, let's just I hope, hope. Cause that's yeah. how I felt. I felt like life's, life's, you know, it's, took some weird turns, but I feel like things are, are looking up for me. Oh, and, and then, then all then of a sudden the entire world shut down. Yeah. So maybe it's you. Probably so. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I'm very excited to welcome back to the podcast. She is an author. She's a journalist. She's a podcaster. And she is someone that I worked with many years ago at Time Out in New York. Please put your hands together for Jennifer Romolini. Hello. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Happy to be here. Nice to see you again. I love your, is that a sweater or a sweatshirt? This is a sweatshirt, but I do try to dress it up a little bit. No, I love it. It's very cool. It's very hip. And you have always been cool and hip. Thank you. I try. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not effortless. Yeah. <laughs> it's- I mean, if someone said to you, and I know people do ask you for advice because you wrote a wonderful book called Weird in a World That's Not, uh, remind me what came after the colon. A Career Guide for Misfits, Fuck-Ups, and Failures. Yeah. So if someone said to you, Jen... I want to be cool and hip like you. What should I do? Just dress like a clown. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, it's like break all the rules that people told you you weren't supposed to break. Mix, mix red and purple. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just have fun. I think that's, that's sort of my style thing. As I get older, I've just been like, I don't give a shit as long as I like it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I like it as sort of just a mantra for me now. Just like, oh, I like it. I like that. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. About like that. It. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, you weren't even supposed to mix pink and red. Now I see that all the time. Yeah. Pink and red is great together. There are so many rules. I was thinking about this the other day, like patent leather shoes. You were only supposed to wear certain times. Oh, I don't really? remember what that rule was. But then, you know, of course, the white after Labor you know, Day. or Labor Day. Like, who cares? Yeah. It's like also just getting older. It's just like the fewer fucks. You're just like, who gives a shit? Yes. And also like what looks good on me is really, that's really the rule. Mm-hmm. Like what looks good on you and stop chasing anything that doesn't. Do you enjoy shopping? 
Because I don't, and I want to, but I don't. I don't enjoy like conventional shop. Like I'm not like, oh, let me just stroll the mall. Like that's a very overwhelming sensory experience for me. I don't like that at all. But I do, I think of getting dressed as like costuming Mm -hmm. and I do always have like specific costume items I'm looking for. And I tend to do a lot of like online hunts for them, usually in eBay and Etsy and you know, sometimes just general um, internet, but um, you know, like I'll just all of a sudden be like, oh, bright blue culottes. That sounds fun. <laughs> and then I'll find them and then I'll be very satisfied for like, you know, I don't know how long it takes me to to get bored three weeks, you know. <laughs> yes. So you are doing Everything is Fine with yes. Kim France, formerly of Lucky and Sassy. Sassy was such a huge part of my life. Same. Same. So Kim France um, is my co-host of Everything is Fine, which is a podcast for women over 40. Um, and I had worked with Kim at Lucky. Sa- so so back up, back up. The entire reason I got into magazines was sassy. I was just one of those kids that had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. I was like, already a slacker at like, you know, 13, 14, <laughs> just like the worst, like bad at school. And reading Sassy was just like a life raft for mm-hmm. me. It was, you know, these incredibly cool women, this incredible taste. And when I got to meet Kim France years later and I told her, you know, I I tried to be the sassiest girl in America. And it was like it was like the Was best. that actually a contest it, they had? Yeah, they had they had a contest to be the sassiest girl in America. And I tried three years in a row. Anyway, when she hired me at Lucky, I told her that while like blushing terribly. Um no, and now I get to do this podcast every week with a hero. It's amazing. That's so cool. I mean, the magazine industry is dead. All all the dreams are dead. But <laughs> I do get to. We do get to live it on yes. somehow. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk more about that because I am a woman over forty. Yeah. So I need to hear about the podcast and stuff. Um, and then you also have a narrative podcast. Yes. Which I was listening to this morning. So good. Um, it's called Stiffed. It is about the brief window of time that there was this uh, female erotic feminist magazine. Is that an accurate way to describe it? It's a feminist porn magazine. That's yeah, what it is. It's feminist porn. Uh, it was put out by Bob Guccione, who was the, um, I think he's he's thought of as being sleazy. He was certainly like a car- character of uh, 70s masculinity. And he put out Penthouse. And then for a very brief window of time, not that brief, actually, in today's, you know, in today's mm. time. Five years, right? It, yeah, five years. So 73 to 78. And then it really, it ends January 79, but it's, it's really, it's five years. And he put out this feminist porn magazine that was staffed by very, very high end, very, very smart, very, very intellectual feminist journalists of the time. And, um, and they had all this very smart work next to pictures of like comical schlongs. <laughs> comical in terms of size or well so so a couple of things with the schlongs i mean i could talk so this the the whole the whole the show is not about the dicks and i really tried to not center the dicks because i feel like look we we center dicks plenty in our lives and i didn't i didn't even hear a lot about dicks no you didn't there's one there's one episode that's a lot about dicks you know or whatever but so I'd been holding on to this story for a really long time stiffed is the story of viva magazine i had gotten a an just bringing everything full circle. Mm-hmm. I had 
gotten an issue of Viva Magazine, bought it on eBay in, you know, 2007 when I was working at Lucky Magazine. And I was like, what the hell is this? This is amazing. How did you even hear about it? I had a column called eBay Obsessed for Lucky Magazine where, you know, I did vintage. I was, I've always been really good at vintage shopping. Mm-hmm. It's just always been my thing. And part of that was by necessity. Because you're cool and hip. No, it was more because I was poor. So like, you know, I worked in magazine publishing where a lot of people had like generational wealth and I Mm -hmm. did not. And I had to look a certain way and I had to have a lot of clothes and I had to put together interesting outfits. And the only way to do that was to get vintage clothes. Mm. So at Lucky, they noticed that and they gave me this column, eBay Obsessed. And one day while I was searching for prairie dresses, which were weirdly back in style in like 2006, I don't know. I, this magazine Viva was served up to me and I bid on it. I got it. And then you could get them for like $7. Wow. It was ridiculous. Now they're like a hundred dollars each, but got this magazine. I picked it up. I was like, what the hell is this? And it was also a moment where, I mean, you worked in magazines. I had only my entire life wanted to work for magazines. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got there, they were on their way out. Yes. Right. So how depressing. Like, is, so we worked together at Time Out New York. I forget if I already said that. But yes. Did – is that even still around? Is it just online? It's like all of these things are just like – just like they're like ghouls. Yeah. They're just like digital – it's like a digital graveyard with just like these zombies, like mm. ro- like weird formatting and like shit about like ingrown toenails. Like it's just like, Oh, yes. It's like, right. look how much weight this celebrity gained. Mm-hmm. And it's like an old article from 2016 right. on Cosmo. It's a fucking – it's a great – it's a wasteland yeah. out there. It's bad. It's it's – and it's been a race to the bottom for so many years in digital media. Anyway, that's getting off topic. But yes, yeah, so I was in magazine while magazines were sort of like – dying. Mm-hmm. And Viva looked like the magazine that I wish existed. Mm. It was so smart. It was so cool looking. The design was gorgeous. It was funky. It was weird. The headlines were good. Funny. The funny sometimes, sometimes like just very straightforward, but you know, they're there. It's 1973. It's 50 years ago. They're writing stories about open marriage and bisexuality and about choosing not to have kids and about their sexual desires very openly, which was not something that was happening in the aughts. Like we were just misogyny everywhere. Even women's magazines Mm -hmm. were just like, get skinnier. Yeah. Give him the best blowjob he's ever had. Can I, Mm -hmm. can I say, Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. (laughs) And this was not about that. Mm-hmm. So I was fascinated by it. After I bought that first issue, I managed to, over the course of like a decade, collect almost the entire five-year set. And I was trying to figure out a way to tell the story. And audio really felt like it would work because also a lot of the people, a lot of the main players were now in their 80s. Mm-hmm. They didn't really want to be on camera. That wasn't, it wasn't. Oh, work. were you yeah. thinking documentary for I a while? I was thinking, but you know, I didn't have any experience. I mean, I didn't have any experience in any of this. I was just like, <laughs> well, let's see, you know. And um, it re- I think that it really did lend itself to audio. I think that the intimacy of a, da- of a, of a, a, pot- a documentary podcast was right for their mm-hmm. stories, you know, because you could kind of visualize who they were then, you know, as mm-hmm. you were listening to it, I think. 
And God, I, I really, so the thing is, is that whenever everybody had forgotten about this magazine and whenever they remembered it, all they remembered were these dicks that going back to what I was saying, the comical schlongs, the comical schlongs. And there were a lot of reasons for the comical schlongs. One was you could not put an erect, a picture of an erect penis in the mail because that was considered obscenity. Mm -hmm. So they would have gotten, you know, fines, jailed, whatever. So all of the schlongs are soft and flaccid (laughs) and shrinkage and, you know, just sort of lying down. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and then the second part of the reason why the, the the pornography aspect of this magazine didn't work was it was always shot through a male lens. It was always male photographers shooting it. They didn't have any male, any female. There was no, there was no straight female input in any of the erotica in the magazine. That said, that if anybody remembers this magazine, that's all they remember are the dicks. And so my whole point with this was I want to tell these women's stories. What was this like for them working in this porn empire? you know, doing these brilliant stories that were then next to these like weird penises and were they turned on by the penises? What was it? So anyway, so I wound up, that's it. I don't, I don't, I don't know where there was a question because I'm just talking. Oh, I think the, the question was comical how, yes. no, but I'm fascinated yeah. by this reading it. Is it incongruous? This like the dicks and the copy? Yes. That was also as a magazine nerd, you just knew that something was fucked up. Like <laughs> I didn't know what the story was, but I knew something was fucked up because it would be like a profile of like Maya Angelou, <laughs> and like the next page is just like this wrinkly, over tan man's ass, and it just makes you're just like, why? Why are these together? Right? It's like Betty Friedan with like the next page is like a dick with a ton of glitter on it Ooh, a glittery dick it's just glitter dick was that like a disco homage it was yeah it was exactly it was like it was like that and it just didn't know what it was like a magazine the way that i was trained in them is you know it should take you on a journey Mm -hmm. you have the front of the book there's all these like little snackable stories and you're just like wow pow 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 and then you get into a feature well and longer stories and then there are images and then you sort of round it up with something fun this was just like anything goes at Mm -hmm. any time you know it was like erotic pocket watches like it (sighs) was it was it was just really strange and I knew that there was something behind it and, and, you know, my, my instinct on it was right. Um, it was, it was funny and, and it was stupid in so many ways and didn't make sense, but it also was an ambition, an ambitious failure, I think. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that there were a lot of really noteworthy women who were part of it. I know Anna Wintour, Betty Friedan wrote for it. Who else? So Molly Haskell, the feminist film critic who people might not know, but she was just sort of legendary in that world. Um, Simone de Beauvoir wrote oh, wow. for it. Um, Maxine Hong Kingston wrote for it. Um, Nikki Giovanni, uh, Erica Jung. I mean, it was just like yeah. anybody who sort of was in that time and who was important was circling through Viva. There's this, this, this feminist writer, Nancy Friday, who wrote one of the, the first and most important book about women's sexual fantasies called The Secret Garden. She wrote essays for it. And then it was just like women who were writing for the Village Voice and the New York Times and also Viva. So Viva was very, and Ms. Viva was very, very important in terms of, you know, it, the writing slate. 
And then the editors, you know, there's this woman, Gay Bryant, who is credited with popularizing the term glass ceiling, which we all know, especially yeah. from Hillary Clinton's, um, you know, presidential campaign. So a lot of important figures were a part of it. And those women went on to do really interesting things. Did they think what? Well, this is a huge question, but like. I was going to say, like, what did what did they think about the magazine they were working for? Did they see it at like, I imagine if you walk through the halls of the New York, you've written for the New York Times, right? I have not. Um, But I imagine if you walk through the halls there, like they feel like they're doing important work or like New Yorker. I feel Mm -hmm. like that must be like prestigious and stuff. Mm -hmm. How was this regarded? I think that. I mean, it was a very silly office, at least the way they they talk about it. You know, there was like. One male executive had a uh, vulva ashtray. <laughs> there was a guy who had a breast that he pressed the nipple. It was a rubber breast on his desk. He pressed the nipple and it was a bell for his secretary. Oh. So there was like a, a glory hole. It's a bit not a glory hole, sorry, but there was a hole that someone had drilled in a wall so they could blow pot smoke out of it. Like these women were working with these sleazy pornographer dudes who were just like eating junk food and drinking soda and like making like filthy like male porn. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think they saw it as was opportunity because they could not do the stories they were doing with the kind of consistency and freedom and at the salaries that they were getting from Bob Guccione. They couldn't do this anywhere else. So he was paying them well. He was paying them well. He hired tons of women. Most of the executives, like a high up executives in his um, organization were women. And they were just like, we just rode around it. We just, you know, we were just, they were also all, most of them really young. It was their first jobs and they just were having a lot of fun. And I think they really had each other's backs. It was, it was really cool to hear them talk about each other and hear them talk about the, the collaborative way they worked and how they went out after work together. Yeah. And this was like, you know, they were the f- kind of one of the first generations that got to do this, you know, live independent lives, not live with their parents until they got married. They're living in New York City in the 70s. It was the sexual revolution. It was the women's liberation movement. They were living in a really cool moment and they knew it. It's crazy that women couldn't get loans or credit cards in their own name until what, whatever year in the 70s it was. What does that what did that mean? If you were not married, you couldn't get a credit card? I think that is what it, it means. Like I've been fact checked on this. And so I'm not, I, I'm not exactly sure, but you know, the, the, the sort of the, the common understanding of this is that I think it was like until 1977, you couldn't get a loan in your own name if you weren't married. Mm. I'm not sure a hundred percent on that or, or an, and also a credit card, but I'm not a hundred percent sure of that fact that is in the podcast. It was fact checked, but recently but it's, somebody said it was not true. I've encountered it elsewhere yeah. too though. Like that's yes. So, but the thing about this podcast is, and the thing about this story that I really wanted to get right was Everybody thinks this is a story about sexual freedom, that what women wanted was sexual freedom, when what they really wanted was professional freedom. Mm -hmm. They wanted to have their own money. They wanted to be professionally fulfilled, creatively fulfilled. And this moment in time that we think of as being this sexy, slinky 70s is really the first time they get this. Mm -hmm. And that was so valuable to them. And- 
you know, I really got to talk about that. And especially in the last episode of the podcast, I really talked about like, what did this mean to you? And that's what it was. It was mm. like proving themselves to themselves, like, oh shit, I can do this. And, you know, I've written a lot about work. I'm really interested in work as, you know, my, my next book that is, is finished, but not coming out for a while is all about workaholism and ambition and the sort of emotional holes that work filled for me in, in almost in the way I leaned on work as a crutch. And so there's a lot of negative things about work and burnout and the great resignation and everything else, but work is also a salvation for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's a safe place and it's a place where we grow. And I don't know, I was really obsessed with where this fit into, where this porn magazine fit into these women's lives and, and how it sort of elevated their lives. Mm. So when it folded, what happened to them? So they were really tight. Many of them went on to be editors in chief. Um, and they collaborated most of them for the rest of their careers. It's amazing. You know, so if somebody was an editor at Glamour, they would assign the same writers they were using at Viva. They yeah. just sort of took care of each other. But, you know, they learned a lot from Bob Guccione. It's crazy because they had a lot of access and they had a lot of freedom and they learned a lot from him. What do you now having having, you know, explored this as much as you have? What do you think of Bob Guccione? You know. I think he was a product of his time. So he was a product of, you know, the patriarchy and misogyny and, and all of those things. But ultimately, why one of the reasons I was interested in this is that he wasn't a straight villain. It's not it's not interesting to do a story where it's like, this guy's just a villain. Mm -hmm. This is just a one dimensional man. And he, you know, he appeared sleazy, but ultimately he really did love women. He gave them a lot of opportunities. He lifted them up. He was really generous. You know, there's one quote in the podcast where somebody says, um, well, he'd call you honey, but he'd make you editor in chief. <laughs> and so, you know, you know, certainly not a saint, mm. but a lot better than fucking Hugh Hefner, yeah. who was an actual scumbag. Mm. You know, I don't, I could not find one story of sexual harassment. Largely, these women liked and respected him. And if they didn't, they were like, you know, he was like a bull in a china shop. Like, we thought he was funny. Mm. But it wasn't like that kind of abuse. Right. And, you know, harassment and all of that. It wasn't – they never felt like that. Mm. Mm. Bob Caccioni or Penthouse is the magazine that did the, like, woman going into the meat grinder, Right. No, that's um, that's not Penthouse. Oh. That's uh, that's uh, I think that's Larry Flint. Oh, right. Hustler. I think that's Hustler. Yes. Okay. I think that's Hustler. Yeah. Guccione was like really progressive and his whole thing was like Americans have too many – like he lived in Europe for a while. He was trying to be a classical painter. Ultimately, because his painting career didn't work out, he went into porn publishing. Like it's that, it's that mm -hmm. simple. His whole thing was that America's Americans had too many hangups about sex and true that it was really it was it was it was stupid and he just he believed that you should be able to show bodies and fucking and all of that just freely mm -hmm. and you know he's wasn't wrong 
I think he sometimes pushed it a little too far, but maybe he didn't, you know, I mean, toward the end of Penthouse when they were just, just trying to stay afloat and this is the nineties, you know, he started showing like a lot of pissing and he was just like pushing the extremes mm-hmm. of fetish. But again, like if we're sex positive, we're sex positive. Like, you know, what he didn't show abuse. Yeah. I mean, it's much better than fucking Pornhub. <laughs> was Viva a turn on for people? Because the way, like the glittery dick is not, that would not do it for me, <laughs> a glittery flaccid dick. The women I talked to largely said it was not. And I, think, <laughs> and, and I think that that's right. I think that for straight women, it was not the most erotic magazine. Um, however, most of its subscribers, when I really got into digging around, most of the subscribers in the subscriber list were gay men. Mm. So it was erotic to somebody. Was that um, a happy accident or was it known? It was a happy accident. So one person I talked to said, you know, Playgirl had the same thing, but Playgirl knew it Mm -hmm. and played to it. Viva, the the editors, I do not think at the time had any idea that they were like making it really making a magazine for gay men. Right, right. So the way you describe the culture of the magazine um, sounds so fun and like the dream of what it would be like to work at a magazine. Uh, is that like, the, would you have wanted to work there? Yes. And that was the other thing I want. I love, you know, I have, I have such a... Uh, I'm such a person who loves, like, I have so much nostalgia for magazines, old school newsrooms, monoculture, you know, when it was like magazines were the arbiters of taste and they actually mattered and meant Mm -hmm. something. And so I really did want to bring to life that platonic ideal of a newsroom, a magazine room. And yes, of course, I mean, I think that now maybe I wouldn't have, but I do miss that moment where you're all working on the same thing together in the same room Mm -hmm. and you're just making something tangible, you know, and then the excitement of like issues. Yeah. Right. Having the magazine come in that week, that month's magazine come in, you hold it in your hands. Right. It means something, but also there's a feeling of like, okay, now we're finished with this. Mm-hmm. There was a rhythm to it that felt natural. And there would be a week when that was kind of downtime where you were kind of putting things together. And then there was close week where you were all staying really yeah. late and there were a lot of deadlines and you had to get it done. I miss those kinds of rhythms of work. I don't think we have them anymore. Now it's just always on, always on, always mm-hmm. on, gun to your head, always on. Right. It's different. I only ever was staffed at weeklies, even though I always wanted to work at a monthly. Um, how did you feel about like working at a weekly versus monthly? I mean, a monthly was much more spacious, especially at Condé Nast. I mean, we were, in my opinion, we were overstaffed, mm-hmm. you know, because you just had so many people in research, so many people fact checking, so many people copy editing, so many layers of editing. And for my disposition, weeklies were better. Um, but now looking back, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I would love to have that, the luxury of that again. Mm -hmm. Like I got bored often Mm -hmm. because I was like, I need, I need more. I need more immediate work. Right. When you say your disposition, do you mean, can you explain that more? Well, neurotic, ADHD, um, hyper ambitious with myself, competitive, Mm -hmm. um, 
anxious. <laughs> so you I liked just, the pace of a weekly. I liked the pace of a, a weekly actually suited me perfectly. Mm-hmm. That was perfect. But then when I got into digital media and I was editing websites and I was editing by the end, like sometimes 30 stories a day. Jeez. Was that at Yahoo? No. Well, that was at Hello Giggles mm-hmm. because that was a startup that was like when startups were all like, we have to we have to get sold. We have to get, you know, we have to blow this up right. as many numbers as possible so that we can get an exit. So all of these people who are not me can make a lot of money. <laughs> um, that kind of broke my brain. I don't know if I could ever go back to daily production again. My brain, I was so burnt out by mm-hmm. that. It was that that kind of working at that capacity and the thing is with the full transparency of how things were performing that was the other thing about print it was so gentle and wholesome in some ways because you had no idea if somebody liked a story right, or not it just right. went out in the world with your best intentions hope and maybe you got a letter yeah. came in like a letter came in the mail <laughs> i did not like that mm-hmm. oh i am sorry sir you know right you didn't see how many impressions or clicks or whatever how right many impressions away. how many clicks you know, Twitter, you know, getting canceled. Just, it just became just like untenable. And you started, I started to get internet brain, which is just, it's not, I mean, not that what I was doing was art, but it's not good for creating. Do you remember? I'm, I hope this didn't come up the last time you were on the show. Cause if so, then we're whatever, who cares? Six six years ago at this point. Yeah. yeah, Right. It's probably not on the top of their mind. Um, do you remember at Time Out New York? I don't know if you were still there, but they put, um, I don't know if this is a trigger warning. The headline for, I think she was a Native American or indigenous actress on the cover or in the magazine. It was like squaw talent. And like, you cannot. Do you remember this? <sighs> yes. There was a, le- were you still there? I don't think I was still there. There was a letter writing campaign. I mean, it was like, it was bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and they didn't, they just, whoever had come up with the headline and who had okayed it, which I guess was, you know, everyone ultimately like did not realize that that term is derogatory. No, of course they didn't. I mean, there were so many things. So as much as I have nostalgia for the past in terms of the pace of working, in terms of the quality of the work, in terms of the collaborative nature of it. I would not want to go back to that time. That was not a good time for women or people of color. I wouldn't even want to go. I wouldn't want to go back to the aughts, you know, Mm -hmm. circling baby bumps and, you know, body shaming and, you know, all of that. I wouldn't want to go back to any of that. The the celebrity reporting of the time, the way we like harassed Lindsay Lohan and and Britney Spears and just, you know, just the way we attacked women. Mm -hmm. I mean- in so many ways, we've improved as a culture. Well, at least some of us, or half of us. Um, but the pacing—we haven't—we haven't figured out how to create work environments that are that are fair and equitable mm-hmm. for everybody, and that don't work people to the bone. Right. Right. Do you feel like that's just capitalism? I mean, I do. It's it's so upsetting. One of the things that came out of writing this that was shocking to me, I think more shocking than any sexual comment, anything, the most shocking, the most shocking transcript I heard and then went back and read was somebody saying, 
a freelancer who worked for Viva saying, I mean, we were making nothing on articles. Like I got paid $500 a piece. And I was like, whoa. Back then. Wow. 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Really think about that. People get paid $50 an article. That's $100. Town and country will pay you $100 for a thousand word reported piece with two secondaries. Yes. That's going in the magazine or online? Online. But I mean, I don't even know what they pay for the magazine now. You know what I mean? Like I don't. See, I I stopped regularly writing for magazines before it changed because I'm I'm from the like dollar to two dollars a word era. Yes. Not for everything, but some magazines, you know. Yeah, I, I know it got really bad. I don't think it's like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. It's a pregnant pause while I, while I do some math in yes. my head. Yes, I'm going to let you, 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 you make some calculations. <laughs> right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fill this space. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying, okay, $500 for like, what length piece are we talking? It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it just matter. it's just real money. It's just real money. Yeah. So and it's real money then. It's real money then. That's yeah. your that's your rent. Right. Damn. So that's like a few thousand now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think about this all the time. I mean, and we were talking about this a little bit when I came in. Like, all of these creative industries are so broken. Like writers. You know, so the, the magazine industry, and I don't know if this is interesting to anybody who's not in print or, but it's also television writers. It's like, there's nowhere to run to. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to run to as creative people. Yeah. Like there was a moment where I was like, okay, well, print's just flaming out. That's all fucked up. And digital, ah, oh, well, I'm going to get paid $35 to, to write a BuzzFeed, you know, quiz. Okay. Whatever. But at least tech. I could do some stuff in tech. You know, Netflix seems to be hiring mm-hmm. or, you know, like, or whatever. Not Netflix, but like, you know, let's say, you know, I could get some work at Facebook or whatever the fuck it is, right? I get some consulting there. So tech's broken. And now television writing. That was like the last place that mm-hmm. everyone ran. Right. You know, or audio and sort of everything. It's all it's all one system. Yeah, we don't because it is capitalism and because we don't value creative people. Mm -hmm. We just don't value creative people's creative work. It's wild to me because I've been doing this for so long and I've seen so many things shift and change. This is the bleakest moment I've seen. Yeah. You know, that's weird. It's weird to be living in that. And it's, it's crazy to imagine people starting out now. Like, what do they do? Well, they're not taught. They're not apprenticed. They're not, they're not really edited. Mm-hmm. They don't have those three rounds of editing on a story. Yeah. TV writers don't get to be on set. I know. I, I just learned about that, the whole mini room thing. They don't get to, they're, we're not teaching people, young people craft mm-hmm. anymore. Right. They're just, they're just as, they're as good as they are out of the gate is as good as they're going to be. Yeah, it's really depressing. That is, that's messed up. Mm -hmm. And it's messed up in creative work. Then you think about news organizations where these young reporters aren't being mentored and sort of brought along and apprenticed Mm -hmm. and everything else. And that's fucked up because then they don't know how to report. Right. 
So we're not teaching an entire generation of journalists how to report. So what kind of ramifications is that going to have long term? Yeah. You know, it's not just that a writer isn't going to know how to really write for TV because we're not giving them the opportunity to really learn. It's also how's our news going to mm-hmm. come about? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and there's a fair speaking of the half yeah. the country that you mentioned earlier. There's a lot of people who don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Someone was telling me I was talking to a, a newspaper editor, a big, big newspaper, and she was saying that she had a young reporter who did a story and turned it in. And she said, did you? Did you, did you go to the place? I, I want to know what this place that you're reporting on feels like. Did mm-hmm. you go to the, well, no. Did it remotely? <laughs> did it remotely? Well, how do you know these? Fa- well, I looked at pictures online. Oh, no. This, this place that you're reporting on is 20 minutes from your house. Go report on it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's chilling. a lot. It's yeah. chilling, right? But I mean, you know, whatever. We keep creating. We keep I mean, I think that creative people, I was just at a reading last night and there was a bunch of writers in the room and it was, you know, it's just like, oh, well, at least we're a community of people together mm-hmm. and we can tell good jokes. <laughs> so tell me, okay, so you you had amassed this collection of Viva magazines. Yes. You were trying to figure out how to tell the story yeah. because you felt like it was a story that deserves to be told. Yes. You're fascinated by it. Um and how did you then like take me from there to it becoming um, a crooked media iHeartRadio podcast that you host and write? So after I got totally fried on the internet, um, I took a weird job. I was just so burnt out, and I was like, "Oh, I have to make, I have to make money." But so this is going to be a little bit of a long answer, but I have to That's make fine. money. So I was so I decided I I got offered this job to work on a website about weed. Um, and the production of the job was based in Ireland. Oh, wow. So it was a weed website. Everybody in my life had told me, you know, don't take this job. This, this job is going to ruin your career. This is a joke job, whatever. Because it was about marijuana. Cause it was just, yeah, it was just about pot. I was yeah. just like, I just like edited a website about pot. And I guess five years ago, people were like, that's a bad move, professional lady. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> so I got to go to Ireland every two months and. Oh, wow. I sort of cleared my head and. During that job, I knew that job was going to end. It was, it was a really messy job, but a really fun job. You know, it was just like all these young Irish people writing about smoking weed, basically. And I, I was like, what do I want to do next? And I knew that I wanted to make something. Mm -hmm. Like I felt very clear that I had been building brands for other people for a long time. And I really wanted to make something that meant something to me. Can I just, um, wait. Yeah. Put a pin in that. Yeah. Can we go back just for people who are like, wait, where, what are all the, can you just tell me all the places you had worked before or many of them so people can get yeah, a sense okay. of what your career was? So I had been an editor at Time Out. I had been an editor at Lucky Magazine, a deputy editor at Lucky Magazine. I had been an editor in chief at Yahoo. I ran several of their websites, eventually becoming like the head of all lifestyle, con- lifestyle content at Yahoo. Then I had, been the vice president of content at Zoe Deschanel's website, Hello Giggles, until we sold that to Time Inc. Then I was the chief content officer of Shondaland. And then I just sort of had been working at like a breakneck pace Mm -hmm. for, and also writing a book in the middle of all of that and not ever taking a break. And you have a daughter and a husband. Yes, yes, yes. I have at some point um, relocated from New York to California. Yes, 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 yes. I have a, um, I have a child and a husband and um I I just was fried and I 
I, I just couldn't do it anymore. Breadwinner of my family, whatever. So I had really given up my dreams of writing. Like I wrote that book, but it was, it was a career guide and it, it, you know, it wasn't as creative as I wanted it to be. It was kind of formulaic, but mm-hmm. then also had some, you know, memoir pieces in it. But I'd kind of gotten an itch that I wanted to be a writer again. Like I had wanted to be at the beginning of my career because by the end of my career, I was literally like, you know, pushing paper around mm. and like talking about SEO <laughs> and, you know. So when the weed job ended, my friend Jane Marie, who owns the podcast studio Little Everywhere. Oh, and she did the, the one about the dream. Yes. And yes. she's so smart. She had worked at This American Life. And she was, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to write another book and I need to figure out what that is. And I need some time. And she was like, well, why don't you come in to the studio and just work a couple hours a week? I need like, you know, basically like an office manager. Mm. So I did that. That started, that job started at the beginning of 2020. So, I mean, you know where this goes. And I was laid off four months later because of the pandemic. But in those four months, I had vetted a lot of pitches for her. I was a very low, it was like almost like an internship, Mm -hmm. but I was in This was after the Ireland job. This was after the Ireland job. The Ireland job imploded because those jobs don't last. Yeah. And I... I just was like, sure, I'll come in and basically be an intern at your podcast studio. And I was vetting a lot of pitches. I was looking at a lot of pitches for her. And then I was helping her build pitches for her own shows. And when I got laid off from that show, I mean, from that job, I just was like, here's my moment. The pandemic has come. I started pitching everything. I pitched some TV shows. I pitched a couple of books and I made a deck and I pitched this Viva podcast and Crooked Media was the first person, first people I pitched it to and they took it. Amazing. And it was like a miracle. It was like sometimes people, sometimes a portal opens up and you, you get, you get the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't always happen like that. Like 10 other projects that I pitched did not go, mm-hmm. but this did. That's amazing. Just a note about a, a, a comment about pitching. I have pitched, I've done two TV pitches mm-hmm. and obviously neither of them went. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I have my feelings about like how, how the pitches went and stuff like that, you know, my gripes about this or this or whatever. But that was kind of enough for me to go like, oh, maybe this thing that I always thought I wanted to do isn't right for me or blah, blah, blah. And then I talked to people who like their ninth pitch is the one that, that, yeah. It's a persistence game. Yeah. My last book, nobody, my last book went out. I think I did 17 rounds of revisions on the on the uh, book proposal. Weird in a World That's Not? No, the one that's coming Is out that now. Is that Ambition Monster? Ambition Monster, mm-hmm. exactly. And nobody wanted it. And we went out, we went out to like 30, 40 editors, nobody wanted it. And my my agent was like, "We're not going to give up. Let's tweak this one more time and I'm going to send it back out." Were they giving you notes for why they didn't want it? Yeah, but they didn't want me. My platform wasn't big enough. You know what? <laughs> I mean, I oh. no man. Yeah. I mean, I don't have you have. I don't have a hundred thousand followers. Yeah, my platform wasn't big enough. Like this mm. is this is the shit as a creative person you right. run into. Right, right. They never give a talk show to no names, and then they give like a no name a talk show. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Um. So my agent was just like my agent was really cool. Like she. She never had a doomsday feeling about it, even though I did. Like mm-hmm. when every re- every rejection came in, and you know, I'm at this point, you know, in my late forties, you know, 
you start to be like, well, this is it. Mm. This is it. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get to do any more work. My, my, my window that the world will accept me as a creative is over. I am in the midst of feeling that way sometimes lately. So yeah. And then you just keep going Mm -hmm. and something goes. It's not, I don't think anymore we can sustain ourselves with creative work because I think we have to think of it as being such a privilege to get to do it and just the way the whole system is. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean you don't get to do it. Yeah. You know? You just have to f- supplement. I supplement. I have a million jobs that I supplement yeah. with. I do all kinds of crap so that I get to make the stuff I wanted. But anyway, that pitch, she was like, let's just tweak it one more time and I'm going to send it to this these two editors. Mm-hmm. And my editor, Kate Napolitano, I love her. She took it off the table. She was like, I want this book. She had no idea how many people were bidding on it. She had no idea that there was only one other Uh person. She had no idea. She was just like, I want this book. And she gave me a pretty good book deal for it. That's great. So you never know. And also, my agent, my original agent had dumped me. He said that he had not seen, he quote, had not seen another book. I just don't really see another book for you. I am grimacing and my soul is dying. Yeah. So it's just, it is, it is persistence. It's a numbers game. So, okay. That specific moment where your agent dumps you because he doesn't quote unquote see another book. Yeah. He also asked me if I, in the same meeting, he asked me if I had gotten work done. What? Yeah. He sounds great. Yeah. How was he before all that? I didn't notice it, but you know, if I really look back, it was just like a lot of slick, you know, yeah. like smile fucking and, you know, just like, oh, shit. smile fucking. I haven't heard that term. What is that? It's like, you know, it's just like they're just grinning at you and yeah. telling you what you want to hear. It's right. like smile fucking, you know, mm. it's like disingenuous. Yeah. You know, it's okay. like, like but, a lot of agents are like that, yeah. you know, and, you know, it's the thing is like the other, the other thing is like you can't make things expecting that they're going to succeed because so much of the success of your work has nothing to do with you. Right. You can only put your best effort into it and then let it go and mm-hmm. be at peace with it. So the from the moment that you got uh like how did it go how how was the experience of finding a new agent? Cuz I imagine for for me, I that would have been like a lo- a bad day for me. <laughs> Yeah, it was a really bad day. It was a really demoralizing day. But, you know, I do have a, you know, I'm an Italian American from Philadelphia and I do have a little bit of like, I'll fucking show you. I have that in me. It's just a, just a thing that's in my soul. And I just went with an agent who was really interested in me Mm -hmm. and who wanted to represent me and who liked me and my work, like really saw me. Didn't see me as a, as a number, you know, that she could make off of me. Right. And I also got a woman this time, which felt more aligned for me. Mm-hmm. Did, did she come to you or did you go out there and to try to, to find another agent? She was my friend's agent and uh, my friend and said, Hey, my agent, Nicole, um, really likes, really liked your book. You should call her. Mm. And I did. And she was like, yeah, I really liked your first book. I think you can write a second book. That's awesome. And then she was just so good about feedback. She just wasn't like people can really bring you down. Yeah. And she was just like, nope, let's just try again. Let's just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. That is an art. 
delivering yes. feedback. Yes. Now, I imagine as all your years as an editor, you yes. also have uh, refined that. Totally. There's a compassionate way to do it. There's a compassionate, smart, direct way to do it that doesn't make the person feel like you're bullshitting them mm-hmm. and condescending them and insulting them, but also doesn't hurt them. Right. And that's your job as a person who gives feedback. That's something you have to t- that you have to take seriously. It's a responsibility. Uh, you said before, like I don't know who's going to be interested in this, um, and if they didn't work in a magazine. And now, here's an incredibly specific magazine question, but it just popped into my mind. Okay, so occasionally I would, or someone will get the note, like new lead, yeah, which is them just telling you you need to have a new beginning to yeah, the story, yeah. 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 I, when I worked as an editor, I would have never just written new lead. I I remember like writing almost like a, so many words about why I felt this particular lead wasn't working and what I thought might work better, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I look back on that and I'm like, no, new lead is actually like, well, how do you feel about new lead as a note? Depends on how the rest of the piece is. Like if the piece is like just all over the place and doesn't know what it is. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I think you need to give them more than new lead because they're lost and they they have no idea where they're going, right? right? And right. you have to provide them with a map. And in that case, I think you saying, "Here's a suggestion. Here's a suggestion." You're just building the scaffolding for right, them, right? Right. But if you're dealing with a writer who can handle it and seems to have command over what they're doing, otherwise, yeah. then new lead's fine. Yeah, it's so much more expedient than. I I mean I'm always like. I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at compassionate direct communication. Yes. I think I really floundered with that when I was younger because I was so worried about hurting someone's feelings. Yes. And, you know, it's a, it's a whole thing. No, I mean, and look, I have, I also like edit a lot of my friends' books and have good relationships with, you know, writers with who I know have really thick skin. And in that case, I might write a note on the side that says, you're better than this sentence. You know? <laughs> And because they can handle it and they know it and then it's funny and it's mm-hmm. not a like, oh my God. Right. You have to know your audience. Who are you speaking to? Is it mm-hmm. a, is it a young writer? Is it a writer who's really struggling with this particular project? Then, you know, let's, let's handle it a little more carefully. Yeah. Ladies, June is just around the corner. And my guess, if you're anything like me, is that you have not purchased a Father's Day gift yet. Well, look no further than the sponsors of today's show because our friends at Manscaped are dedicated, dedicated, I said that weird, dedicated to upgrading his grooming game from face to waist. Their brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit is the total package dedicated to making sure all fathers are extremely well-groomed. Have him join the 8 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BESTFRIEND at manscaped.com. Daniel is Mr. Manscaped. He has like all of their products. He uses all of them. I'll, you know, I tend to go to bed first, so I'll be in bed and I'll hear him go into the bathroom and then I just hear like, uh, there's like things and then like nose clippy things. And none of these are the official names of them, but he is, uh, he can vouch for all of the manscaped stuff. Let's start with the ultimate father's day MVP, the beard hedger pro kit inside this package. He'll find their signature beard hedger trimmer, beard shampoo and conditioner, beard oil. I think he does use their beard oil, beard balm, and two free gifts with their signature beard comb and scissors. 
This is, do you know how expensive this would be if you bought this all separately? With 20 hair cutting lengths and a singular guard, he'll be able to craft his look like never before without a mess in the drawers, something we ladies can all appreciate. And if he doesn't have a beard, he needs to try their performance package 4.0. This beautiful bundle is absolutely daddy material. It includes their signature lawnmower 4.0, brand new weed whacker 2.0 ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver ball deodorant, crop reviver toner, performance boxer and a travel bag to hold his goodies. Do you know how much I love a travel bag? I love a travel bag. And by the way, I just want to point out, this is not grooming 1.0. This is not your Manscaped 1.0. That was yesterday. This is 2.0 to 4.0. The future is now. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BESTFRIEND at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code BESTFRIEND. Make this Father's Day one he won't forget with Manscaped. I want to talk to you guys about HelloFresh. I love HelloFresh with HelloFresh. And yes, I did just say it three times in a row. I uh, challenge you to do the same. You get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Now, if you're like me, perhaps you watch cooking shows sometimes and you think, yeah, you're not all that great. I could do that if I had a sous chef or an intern to source materials, and by that I mean ingredients for me, and measure them out, and you know, get it, it's, it, what do they call it, mise en place, to get it all ready for me and stuff. Well, enter HelloFresh, your sous chef, and HelloFresh, if you want to take that, you can, it's yours, I give it away. Uh, everything's like all measured out for you already, and the ingredients are so fresh, they care about quality, these are seasonal ingredients that are picked at peak ripeness and travel from the farm to your home in less than seven days with a story to tell. So you know they're fresh. HelloFresh makes dinner time a snap with deliciously easy options that will please everyone at your table from fit and wholesome to pescatarian to veggie. They have a meal plan that suits your lifestyle. Plus you can swap out proteins and sides to your liking. And also it's not just delicious dinners anymore. Now you can pick from 40 weekly recipes. No, sorry. You not only can you take your pick from 40 weekly recipes, but you can choose from over 100 items. I say get all of them to round out your order from snacks and easy lunches to desserts and pantry necessities. Everything arrives in one box on a delivery day you choose. Go to HelloFresh.com slash BestFriend16 and use code BestFriend16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, HelloFresh.com slash BestFriend16. Use code BestFriend16. That's BestFriend16 for 16 free meals. It's like they're giving it away, plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. So let's talk about uh, being women over 40. Oh, fuck yeah. How do you feel about it now? Um, well, I just turned 50. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Um. I feel fucking great. I didn't for a long time. It was, it was a really hard, like 40 was whatever, you know, cause at 40, you still kind of look the same mm-hmm. as you did when you were like, you don't really change that much physically until your mid forties for, for most of us. Um, I was really holding on to being young until about the last two years. Like, and I always, I always describe it as 
like a scene in a movie where a character's been thrown out of the plane, but they're holding on yeah. to the fucking plane mm-hmm. and they have to let go. Like the only way this movie is going to keep going is if that character just lets go of the fucking plane. Uh, right, you know? right. I was holding on to the plane. I was holding on to being a young woman. I was mm-hmm. holding on to what I considered to be the power of being young. Mm-hmm. And I was really afraid. I was I, – I felt – I was really afraid of Mm -hmm. what being an older woman was going to be a middle-aged woman, like Mm -hmm. really just being like, okay, I'm fucking middle-aged now. Instead of being like, Ooh, let me put another filter on my face. Like, could I pass for 35? (laughs) You know? Right. And the last couple of years, it's not that I, you know, because there's also been a sort of girl bossification of middle age, which I do not believe in, Mm -hmm. which is like, I don't give any fucks now, you know, all that bullshit. Yeah. Because it's also, you know, and I don't know how many of your listeners are are men and if they care about this, but it's a physical cataclysm. Like at a certain point in your late 40s as a woman, it's a physical cataclysm. Menopause is a fucking nightmare. If men went through it, we would have solved it 50 years ago. (laughs) It's it's obscene. Yeah. It's it's obscene what we go through. Like, you know, if they had anywhere near it. Um, But you – yeah. You haven't gone through menopause yet, have you? I'm in I'm in, in it. it. Okay. I'm in it. I mean, nobody knows the difference between this, which is why I didn't discuss this, but like there's there's like a perimenopause right. into menopause. Like I'm in it and I've mm-hmm. been in it for years and I just started the like in the last couple of weeks there were like it's for some reason, same time each night, I all of a sudden get really hot. Yes. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Did it, is that how it was for you? That's same time each yeah, night? That's how it starts. Ugh. That's how it starts. And then it does all kinds of weird things to you. Like yeah. it does all kinds of weird things. Like at a certain age for women, if you look up the whatever weird symptom it is, my mouth, my it, tongue itchy, feels like it's on fire. Itchy vagina? Itchy any anything. Itchy anything. <laughs> itchy I, ear. Yeah, because I was like, oh, am I drying up? Is that why I feel itchy? Sorry, Tony. <laughs> yeah, no, no. No, 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 totally. Vaginal atrophy. This has not happened to me, but like a lot of our guests bring this up on and I'm just like, oh God, men, just just turn it off, you know? But um it's so of course there was a lot of fears because nobody talks about any of this shit. And that's yeah. why we do this podcast every week, because nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. And the people who do talk about it are either rah-rah or so like musty panties depressing that you're or just trying like, to sell you something. Or trying to you sell you some fucking cream that yeah. you don't fucking need. Right. So we just we really talk about it openly. And I I actually genuinely feel pretty great about being older and not because I give fewer fucks. I give all the fucks, but I give them in the right places now, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm more comfortable as myself now mm. and I know what's for me in a way I didn't, which changes my relationship with everything. It changes my relationship with work particularly because I don't feel jealous of other people. I kind of I feel like I'm sort of writing my own ticket and I get to be the engineer of my life in a way I never did before. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, once you step into that, it's it's a really nice place to be. I feel like it's where men always are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know that like mentally, emotionally, I'm in maturity wise, I'm in such a better place than I was when I was young and supple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just coming to terms with for me, like what I'm seeing happening in the mirror yes. and that, you know, and that sort of like trying to see myself through the lens that the industry would see me through. Like, well, what is the place for, oh, you know, for women our age? 
and wherever then, the fuck we want. Right. Yeah. That's because it. then you step back because and you're nobody, like, nobody yes. dictates that. Yeah. Nobody, nobody gets to tell you what your fucking place is. Mm. And like, actually, there's a super liberation. It's so scary. You're holding on to the plane so much because there's a, but there's, you're holding on to the plane because you do not want to be out of the male gaze because there's power in being yeah. sexualized. Right. And it is terrifying to let go of that. And when you really just are like, I don't give a shit anymore. This mm. is fucking, I'm wearing a sweatshirt. <laughs> Fuck it. I don't care. You don't need to look at my tits. Like, I don't need to be sexy for you, for you to look at me mm. as a business entity and see my value. When you really step into that fully, there's a massive liberation and it is really hard to do. And it took me a couple of years and it took me having so many conversations with other women and older women than me mm -hmm. to really do that. And, you know, I had somebody say to me recently, like, I was 33. I mean, I really have to like put together, you know, a pitch because I mean, I'm going to be old, too old soon. Oh, and boy. I was like, listen, <laughs> I'm 50 years old. I've just done something I never got to do before. Stiffed. Stiffed. I'd never done a narrative podcast. Mm -hmm. I took a narrative podcast writing class in the middle of writing it because I was like, oh, fuck. Did I bite <laughs> off more than I could chew here? Right. It's been – it was the most rewarding – Stiffed was the most rewarding projects I've, I've ever done in my life. Learning a new skill at 50 was fucking incredible and it's got amazing attention. Like people love this project. Mm -hmm. Like nobody – on paper, nobody would have said I could do that, mm -hmm. but I just did it anyway. So I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that, but I, I do think it's it's really important for men and women to not have this idea that you have an expiration point mm -hmm. because that's just something in your head. And if you keep it in your head and at the forefront, then oh, that's what back. you're putting out into mm -hmm. the world. Like, oh, oh, could you please take me? I'm so old. Gives a shit. My brain works. Yeah. Like, I'm good. I'm better than I ever was, honestly. But I had a question about Stift and I have lost it. Pitching. Damn it. Doing something new. She did something that you had never done. Oh, 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 the class. Yes. Where does one take a narrative podca audio podcast class? I guess all pod. Well, no, summer video. I took it at Dustlight Studios with a woman named Arwen. And um, it was just one three-hour class. And I learned so much. And it was just what I needed because I had storytelling skills mm -hmm. from years being a writer and editor in different mediums. But I needed to specifically understand the rhythm of writing for audio. So I wrote this whole series by mm -hmm. myself. You know, it was so cool to do something new. And um, I took that one class because I think – I read a lot of scripts, like a lot of podcast scripts. I probably read, I don't know, dozens. Mm -hmm. And I looked up a lot of transcripts of my favorite podcasts. So if I couldn't get my hands on scripts, I could just look. Like I studied. I studied mm -hmm. like I was learning a new thing, which I was. And I had a lot of humility. I think a lot of times, you know, we get older and our egos can really get in the way of things. And we can be like, oh, well, either you're flexing your resume mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm senior. <laughs> And I was really honest with Crooked Media, like every time I didn't know what I was doing, could you guys help me here? Mm. And I wasn't afraid to have that kind of beginner's mind, which I think is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, we get stuck in ruts. Did you, so 
in terms of the actual process, did you do the interviews and then sit down to write? Like how yes. did so I reported it out for a year um with a with a uh a, a producer that I worked with and then um then we had all those transcripts and then we outlined it and then re-outlined it and re-outlined it and re-outlined it and then uh, brought you know figured out how to use the tape we had these interviews mm -hmm. to tell to let that lead the story and then the other fun thing about it was finding all this archival tape of bob guccione who mm -hmm. had this like amazing voice this amazing like baritone voice he was just the coolest just to hear him was very cool and i found i did a lot of like that's when like fact checking and research that i'd done in magazines came in handy because i was really able to find like lost interviews mm -hmm. of his and then I had an incredible, incredible story editor. And that was really when I got it because I had, I understood the writer editor relationship. And once I had this, and she was so good, her name is Mary Knopf, and she was so good. And I knew immediately I was like, oh, I'm going to be fine because this editor has my back. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, you're not alone either. You right. know, when you're trying something new, you're not alone. What, what, so there's eight episodes, right? Yes. Was one harder than the others? There was one. There's one in the middle. It's episode five, and it um in it I really in episode five I really had to explain. I really needed to place the listener in the sexual revolution, so I had to give a lot of historical context. That could be really fucking boring, and I didn't want it to sound like a Wikipedia mm -hmm. page. Which honestly, a lot of podcasts you're listening to them, you're like, "This, what is this? I'm so bored." <laughs> After I had been telling this very sexy story with all of these different voices, I had to place it somewhere in order for it to make sense, and in order to have the stakes to understand the stakes that these women were facing. So, I wanted to make it not academic. It had it had to do so many things. I had got Erica Jong on the phone. I had a 20-minute interview with Erica Jong, and I knew I wanted to use that. And then I just found a bunch of people to help me tell the story. Like I figured it out, but it took me – like I locked myself basically in this like shack that I write in for a whole weekend. And I cracked it. I eventually cracked it, and I knew when I had cracked it. I knew it was fun. I knew it was exciting. I knew all of these women's voices were really compelling – I, you know, I contacted like modern day feminist pornographers to help give like context of the time, uh, for context of now versus the time. Mm -hmm. So it was also reporting. It's like, I think we don't realize how much of our shit is just transferable all the time. Yeah. Like you're, you've been around for a long time. You have a lot of skills. You can transfer it. So some of it was just like reflexive. I, I knew I didn't have it yet because of all the work I'd done in print. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking late. I, I I tend, I sort of beat myself up of late. Maybe the last couple of years, I started like thinking about different things I've done in my life. Yeah, and feeling like I didn't have training. Like I should have taken a class instead of just like I feel like I this you know these opportunities were given to me in different arenas before I was ready. Yeah. And yeah. like I went in and, you know, like I got, because I was, when we were at Time Out in New York, I was going on <clears throat> NBC4 and doing mm -hmm. a segment every week and they liked me. And so yeah. they they had me do a couple other things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I remember one of the segment producers saying like, so tell me if you were, if you were 
if this was a print story, how would you do it? Yeah. Cause you have to, you log tape and there's, I don't think I actually logged the tape, yeah. but like there's all this stuff you do. And, and, and also I like, I never went to journalism school, which right. I actually, that's the one area where I feel like I was able to like go pretty far, even though I hadn't. I didn't yeah. I didn't, either. I, yeah. Didn't either. yeah. I, I just kind of taught myself, you know? Yeah. Um, although I do think that there were like longer stories where I, maybe it would have helped me had I taken a class in like how to write a 2000 word feature or whatever, you know, like even yeah. like nut graph is a yeah, thing yeah, I yeah, learned yeah, on the, yeah, on the yeah. job. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah, I think, or like even like auditioning for acting things, like yeah. I wasn't a proper, I wasn't properly trained. There's yeah. so much training I could have availed myself of that I didn't. And actually just to bring it full circle, yeah. just lately I've been like, I should, you know, I enjoyed acting. Yeah. Um, I think I had some raw talent that, I didn't show through in rooms, certainly, but because I was like, I don't, I'm nervous. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I should take a class. And then, but then, but then this is where I go like, but then what am I going to do? Go to my agent and be like, hi, like what roles are even available? I know there are, but I'm just saying that's where I got in my head about my age all of a sudden. Yeah. No, I mean, look (laughs) and understand that like, it might not happen tomorrow and it might not ever happen, but you're curious about it and you want to do it. Right. Right. And it's something you like, but also I'm going to, I want to go back to what you said. I do think that we underestimate the confidence of ignorance. Yes. Like there is a little bit of like, it's that beginner's mind where you go in and you don't know all the problems yet. You're just like, Oh, maybe this could, you know, that's part of the like almost shame is too bad. That's part of the the slight embarrassment cringe of it all is to go back and think I was telegraphing my ignorance and how much of a, how green I was. And I didn't realize it. Yeah, no, no. That was, I had many panics about in this process. I mean, I'm, I'm telling it like it was this glorious story and it was in a lot of ways because it was me kind of wrestling with myself. But the panic I had was I knew all the dumb shit mistakes in writing, in mm-hmm. book writing, yes. in journalism. I did not know the dumb shit mistakes in making a podcast, uh-huh. right? Like just the, just humiliating. And the first script I turned in was not good. And I knew it immediately after I did the table read, I looked at the faces <laughs> of the people and I was like, oh, that was bad. And it was so bad that they couldn't engage with it. They couldn't mm. even give me notes, right? New lead. <laughs> New lead, exactly. New whole thing, Okay. <laughs> So that was when I went into the panic. That's when I took the class. That's okay. when, cause I was like, okay, I need to understand. And then I was very clear, not with like all the executives in the room, but the editor, I was like, okay, I might be making like really embarrassing, like JV mistakes here. You know, please tell me, I want to know every single thing you're seeing wrong mm-hmm. here because I want to learn. By the fourth script I wrote, I had it. Yeah. It's just getting through that mm-hmm. and taking your ego out of it. Exactly. Who cares? I want to do this. Which I actually think, no offense, young people, young people have a hard, I certainly had a hard time doing it when I was young. So did I. Yeah. So did I. But what do you still want to do? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I mean, what is it? What burned? Like, what's the thing? Like, ah, right. I, you know, it's interesting. And I imagine you have, or I wonder if you've had this too. At a certain point in getting older, you you think about your sort of un un uh the the I can't think of the word, but the dreams that you always had. You know, yeah. I always held out, you know, this dream or this dream. And then it's like, 
wait, is that even something I still want to do? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you're redefining success for yourself. Right. Right. Success for me, I realized is what we just talked about, the process. I'm really process oriented. I'm not actually as outcome oriented as I thought. Like, I don't really care anymore how it looks on Instagram. I really don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That's amazing. I don't to be free of that. I don't care because I know my value and I know what sort of gets me off professionally. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, this is, this is the conversation all about work, but like, you know, I know what satisfies me. And what is that? It's a job well done mm-hmm. that I know was well done. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't really matter what the rest of the world. Like I I wrote that last when I turned in that last episode of of Stiff, the script for that. I loved it. I was like, I love this. That's so nice. And I don't care what anybody like I'll do what I have to do to get it through the process and you know. But I felt I was satisfied by the work. Mm-hmm. And I feel I felt the same way about my last book. Like this work satisfies me and wrestling with it is a joy for me in some way. It's like a challenge and a joy that I it's something I enjoy. And that's the most you're gonna get. Yeah. Because the rest of it you can't control. So putting yourself in places where you can do things that light you up. No matter what other people fucking think about it, that's that's the that's the dream. Mm-hmm. Totally. Because the other thing is, is that you know all people ever see is like, who cares what other people think of you and what you should do. You know, the rest of the world will be like, oh my god, I you know you put out this book, you did this, whatever. I know how much I get paid for this shit. Mm-hmm. I know, I know what how much. It's like no one will ever understand that mm-hmm. stuff. So why do I care about their opinion? Right. Right. And also why, and, and also you're never going to actually encounter them. Like the, yes. the opinions that you're seeking are not people in your daily life. I recently have had like a real come to Jesus about like commenters and like mm, negative reviews. Yeah. Like I've really, I had a conversation like the last six months, like somebody was, there was somebody who was listening to everything is fine podcast. Who was just like hating me, like mm. hating me across platforms. And Somebody said to me, have you ever left a, uh, have you ever left a review for a podcast, positive <laughs> or negative? And I was like, oh no, I haven't. So just think about the kind of person that's yeah. leaving, that's dragging you. Why do you, why are you mm-hmm. giving this? And also this has nothing to do with you. This has to do with them. them. Yeah. It's always that. Yeah. So I know it's tough because it. It's disembodied. It's disembodied. I think that like the negative feedback for me, at least it turns into, oh, these it's as if it's the seventh grade girls who are mean to me again, or it's, you know, this parental figure or this, that it's like you, you, it's a trigger. Yeah. It's a trigger. It's a trigger. Well, it's also the John Mulaney thing of like, you'll cancel John Mulaney. I'll kill him. It's (laughs) like your inner, your self-loathing is bigger than any critique could ever be. Also, you don't like you get 20 nice comments and it's the one bad one. that just like sticks in that one's the the truth. Exactly. Right. Exactly. They know. Right now. So ambition monster is written, but Mm -hmm. is coming out not for a little while. Comes out next May year from now. Okay. Do you think you'll do another podcast? Like what, what is your next thing? If you know, yeah, I mean, I'm 
I really would like to do more podcasts. I really liked it a lot. The whole experience was great, mostly except with everything we talked about. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just, I want to keep making shit. Mm-hmm. I want to keep making shit until I die. I want to keep making shit until they don't let me make shit anymore. I want to write a novel. It's like, how else can I challenge myself creatively? For me, mm-hmm. you know, and hopefully people like the work, but how can I stay engaged and learning new things? So I'm not bored. I'm not sad. There's enough in the world that's like boring and sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want all of my work to be that. Right. Right. Do you happen to have a just me or everyone? I do. Let's hear a song and then let's hear it. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? All right. I love that you brought notes. Thank I did. you. I brought I brought notes. I t- as I said, I understood the assignment. I took it seriously. Um, so I can't open anything. Oh. I feel like packaging is getting impossible. Yes. yes. What the fuck with packaging? Yes. I'm not just talking about weed because weed is impossible to open. <laughs> like, like you know, gummies, like yeah. le- you know, medical legal cannabis is impossible. But I'm a box of about- granola bars is yes. impossible to get into. Everything's impossible. Vitamins. Yeah. It's oh like my God, it's like a tab and you then lose another a nail. thing. Yeah. You need a nail. I was trying to open like a package of cheese the other day and I was like, why is this so hard? Why does everything require a tool? Yes. Like, why do I need a pair of, like, it says it's going to, you're going to be able to rip it. But and you then can't. Gonna, but you can't. No, it comes like a, t- like a 20th of it peels off and then you're yes. screwed. And then you're just sitting there and then like you ripped it open in a way yeah. that like the, the bag that is supposed to reseal doesn't oh, re those constantly. reseal bags never work no. for me and i'm like am i like a weird animal i'm the hulk like this is horrible everything's like torn open yes. like it was a bear yes this is not just you okay this is me as well it, just today i saw a paper clip like an opened partially opened paper clip on my desk because I was trying to open a package. See, here's the thing is that everything needs a tool, but I refuse to get that tool. Yes, that's Like also- I was sitting there trying to open it with a paper clip. Like, <laughs> Just get off your butt and get the scissors that I don't no. keep scissors on my desk. I don't know why I don't, but Daniel, I could just get his scissors. Yes. But no, I refuse. No. Yeah. 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 Uh, Tony. Yeah. Same problem. It's terrible. Everything's yeah. hard. Yeah. Why? It didn't used to be. It used to just be that CDs were impossible to get into. (laughs) Yes. CDs were like notoriously impossible. But like, even like I bought, speaking of scissors, I bought a pair of scissors the other day. It was impossible (laughs) to get into the scissors. To get into the scissors. Yeah, that clamshell packaging of hard plastic. Like all, it's impossible to get into any children's toys. Oh, a package of razors. And then children's toys, they also like, they tie each bit to the thing. Yes. Children's toys, that is just abuse. Yeah. That is just, <laughs> everything is like tied in. So you need to untie right, each right. piece. To, and then, and the, then the battery, like no longer does the battery thing just slide in. They You have to screw oh, it. Oh, yes. In. You need so, a tiny screwdriver yes, for it. Everything yes, needs a tool. Yes. Just to call out a specific thing that's impossible to open, uh, Entenmann's donut holes or any Entenmann's anything. I don't know if you're familiar with the specific. Yes. yes. The push tabs. What? Tony, I'm I, I'm actually surprised that you're familiar with it, and I'm happy that you are. So my kids are on a donut hole kick. Mm-hmm. Mo, you know, 
Hostess donut holes, fine. They just open like a normal thing that's hard to get into. Entenmann's has some like proprietary. It's like a box <laughs> where the, there's a flap that opens, but on the sides there's these oval things that it says push tab to release or something. So you end up like having to shove your finger it, into the box, and then it opens, and then you you can't get it. It's it is you need an engineering degree. <laughs> I have been intending, like every t- when I'm close to going to bed, I'm like, I'm going to get in bed and I'm going to see where uh, what other people think of the Entenmann system. I kind of want to buy sure- some now just to experience. You got to see it. I, we have. I'll, if I remember, I'll show you a box <laughs> on our way out. Because um, I'm sure there are. There's got to be a Reddit board of people who are angry about this because it's insanely ineffective. It's so annoying. It's also annoying. And then you like, you're, you're using like a chip clip for everything because everything's been torn open and torn because you can't even get the boxes to close again. It's just, yes. Yes. No, it's all of our cereal boxes are like puff. Like they look like they exploded. (laughs) Yes. I don't, this is, this is not the way it used to be. It's not the, no one should live like this. No, nobody should have to live Mm -hmm. like this. Shampoo. Why is it so hard? It should not yeah. be this. I don't need this many times. It's fucking shampoo. It doesn't yeah. matter. I know. What is it? Is it a um, freshness guarantee thing they're doing? Are they trying to prevent theft? What's going on? A poisoning? I, I don't know. I don't know. Even like a spray cleaner the other day, I was like, <laughs> how many times do I have to like turn this yes. in the front until it comes out? Like, And then I'm always afraid with a spray cleaner that I'm going to be like, I'm going to, it's going to all of a sudden yes. like decant in my eye. <laughs> It's too much. But the the granola bar box thing, because yes. it's, it's a life of yeah. donut holes and granola bars. Yes. It used to be, <laughs> in my day, <laughs> you open up the top, and then you open the other side of the top, and then there's two little flaps. Yes. The little, those little tiny sort of, they do nothing flaps. Yes. And then you can get to the granola bars. But now you open the first top, and then the other one is part of the box. It doesn't release. There's like a second top under the top, <laughs> or... There's like a bag inside. There's also sometimes a inside bag inside that has, it's like, you're supposed to be able to reseal it, but you can't, the reseal. I, because I always open them like a raccoon. That's it. That's a raccoon. It's, it's wild animals. It's wild animals in my kitchen. (laughs) It's just, yeah. I am with you a thousand percent Mm -hmm. on this. If someone who works in packaging could let us know when everything changed, I would like to know. I was like, I should be one of those people who carries a small Swiss army knife on me. Yes. But I don't carry my keys on me at home, you know? No. Um, but yeah, no, I never have the right tools. And also someone sent this in as a just mirror everyone. Andy Neiman says, just mirror everyone. I have a nice letter opener. It's a fancy one that looks like a swordfish, but it's never handy when I want to open a letter. So I wind up te- tearing mail apart like a slob. Yes. Yeah, 100%. I bought a pack of like letter opener things. I have four of them in different colors. And yet I'm still always giving myself paper cuts, like opening the envelope. Oh, just the, uh, the it's just, the, it shouldn't be open like this. It's mm-hmm. like, it's just ripped in the, yeah. in the middle. Oh my God. Or yes. wait, those ones when they, they come, they, it's children's report cards, some tax information. You're supposed to take the tabs off the oh sides. Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> and then checks, paychecks. Yes, like paychecks. That and then they're supposed to. And I always rip them. Off yeah, it. like I might yeah. as well be. I might as well be just tearing at them with teeth. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Okay, per- that was wonderful, and I relate intensely. Do you have a hey go fuck yourself? I do. Wonderful. I do. Let's hear um, it. I have a hey go fuck yourself to Republicans in Texas and Florida and mm. the fucking anti-trans le- legislation. Let's stay away from other people's bodies and choices. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. 
Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. Jennifer Romolini, it was so nice catching up with you. So nice catching up with you anytime. I can't believe it's been six years. I, I feel know. like it's been a minute. I know. Uh, agree. I know. I was trying to think like what was happening? I guess. So it was July 2017. So I had uh, pretty recently had Elliot. Yes. And I remember you telling me some advice that I think about often, which was don't try to do anything in the first year of their life. <laughs> it's going to be, I mean, you know, yeah. no, so to speak. Just impossible. Yeah. Because it's going to be really Because I think I was beating, beating up on myself about my career motivation or something like that. It's fine. It's fine. It's yeah. all, it all works out. <laughs> Tell everyone where they can find you. Plug all your things. Um, I am Jen Romolini, J-E-N-N-R-O-M-O-L-I-N-I at, um, across the social medias. Uh, you can find everything is fine wherever you find podcasts. Stift is out completely now. You can binge it also where you find podcasts. And I have a website, jenniferromolini.com. Wonderful. Tony? At Tony, or, uh, yeah, said that all wrong. Twitter and now Instagram. You're, now yeah. you're getting a bit of my disease. Which is where I can't do just the basic fundamentals of <laughs> podcasting anymore. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, Twitter and Instagram at Tony Thaxton. And uh, Bizarre Albums every Tuesday. And if you like what you're hearing, or even if you don't, please make sure you're subscribed. Tell a friend. Leave us a nice review. Click five stars. Subscribe uh, to my channel on YouTube, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen. I am Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram, the Allison Rosen on TikTok. And I have a Patreon. Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. All sorts of fun stuff there. Uh, and then also my new podcast, Allison and Todd After Hours with Todd Perry, with whom I used to do Upworthy Weekly. That is a Patreon podcast. On that one, there's only one level, though. It's just $2 a month. And um, people are liking it a lot. And we're having a lot of fun. That is Patreon.com slash Allison and Todd. All right. Thank you, everyone. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. About the Alice and Rosen show. We had a good time, but now we gotta go.